Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Ontario joins Quebec in calling on the Army to help with coronavirus outbreaks in long-term care facilities. We'll be making a formal request to bring in those extra reinforcements. This includes resources from Public Health Agency of Canada and Canadian Forces personnel. We will begin by directing that the additional personnel be deployed to five priority homes in the province. A surge in Justin Trudeau's approval ratings. It's about planning how the economy comes out. You know, that is going to be the real test of, of leadership. And I think that uh, let's talk about the numbers six months from now, maybe a year from now. And questions continue about how the RCMP handled the weekend attacks in Nova Scotia and why an emergency alert wasn't sent to the public. In that hour and a bit, in that amount of time of consultation is when the uh, subject was, was killed. It's Thursday, April 23rd. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. Ontario has joined Quebec in asking for help from the Army to deal with the crisis in long-term care facilities, where clearly this is really taking hold. And I think this really has shed the spotlight on what's happening in long-term care homes and seniors' residences. I'm not sure what can be done in the short term, but do you think this is turning into an issue that that the government will have to confront once this crisis is over? Well, it's clearly, I mean, we really have two stories here. We have a, a, a COVID crisis which has proven to be uh, less draconian than, than the government government had anticipated in its modelling in the general population. Um, I mean, most of the most of the actual scenarios are better than the best case modelling scenarios. So, you know, we haven't seen ICUs being swamped. We haven't seen mass hospitalizations, And yet, in the long-term care home situation, it seems to be getting worse. And, you know, Premier Legault wasn't, wasn't even calling for doctors. He was just calling for, we need people with uh, from the military just to be in there to help because the staff in these facilities have been so overburdened and you know rates are still rising so it's it's uh, there's been nothing predictable about the spread of this virus and you know i i think that in much of the country the uh, the, the peak has clearly passed i mean there were no new cases in newfoundland labrador yesterday and none in prince edward island none in new brunswick I think there were six cases in, in British Columbia. And Alberta, too, seems to have things under control. Saskatchewan and Manitoba have things under control. And yet, in Ontario and Quebec, we're still seeing the existence of the virus in the general population and this acute problem in in care homes. And I think the government is extremely worried that there are four or five prisons where something similar might happen. Now, the, now the age profile might be... The big difference, but certainly in uh, I looked at the prison populations in some facilities where 70% of those tested were positive in uh, four or five jails. So it's uh, it's been extremely hard for anybody to get on top of because it is so unpredictable. And you make a good point about the differences across the country. Saskatchewan is already talking about a plan to reopen parts of the economy next month. So that's where Saskatchewan is. But it's hard to picture Ontario and Quebec in a similar situation before we see a dramatic change in the numbers, right? Right. And I think, you know, I mean, Manitoba is talking in similar fashion. Uh, funnily enough, Premier Legault is talking about... Uh, 
opening the schools up before too long, which uh, seems premature, particularly where I'm sitting in in, uh, in, in Chelsea, Quebec, and people are uh, neighbours are saying, "Well, how can we think of sending kids back to school when we're reading about these deaths all over the place?" But but really, they're not all over the place. Really, they're in they're in care homes and in certain pockets of places like Montreal. Meanwhile, Dr. Tam, the top public health official in the country, uh, is uh, by and large getting good reviews for the work that she and her team have done. But there is a faction of people who are saying that uh, that she's doing a terrible job, that she's flip-flopped, that she needs to be replaced. And in fact, a conservative MP, Derek Sloan, tweeted something to that effect yesterday. What's, what's going on there and what does that reflect about uh, a certain sentiment that's out there in Canada? Well, it was... I would say he was overtly racist. I mean, frankly, he, he said, this should work for for Canada, this should work for China. The implication being that because Dr. Tam is on, on one of the governing boards of the WTO and takes the lead of, from the WTO, as do just about every other government in the, in the world, that, that uh, the WTO is in thrall to the Chinese government and therefore, by implication, Dr. Tam works for the Chinese you know, the fact that she's of Asian ethnicity clearly plays into that. And I think it was dog whistle politics by uh, an obscure backbencher who is running to be conservative leader. He's a no-hoper and he's going to very soon return to the obscurity that he deserves to return to. Um, it was pretty blatant in what it was trying to do. It was trying to appeal to the to the sort of wild-eyed, wild-eyed conspiracy theorists who cling on to the far extremes of the Conservative Party and uh, and I think he probably hit his mark. I mean, judging by the the comments that I that I saw and were sent to me after I commented on it, um, there's a lot of sympathy with that point of view, and not a lot in the in terms of the general population, but in terms of the the uh, population he's aiming at, the Conservative Party membership, there seems to be a, a fringe which agrees with him. It's shocking to me, to be honest, that that, um, that 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 it exists and it still exists within the Conservative Party because I think. Uh, the party will remain unelectable as long as it has this sort of wild-eyed component to it where, where more moderate people look, look at who even think about voting Conservative are suddenly confronted with this extremism in the party. And this is by a guy who's running to be leader. You know, the Conservatives have, have already kicked out a couple of people who who flirted with extremism, uh, who, were, who were thinking about running, who declared that they were going to run, um, there will be complaints about this guy, and they may take a look at him uh, and, and decide that he's uh, not qualified to run. Uh, I think that would be a mistake. I think it would be giving too much oxygen to him. I, right. They should probably just ignore him, and sooner or later, he will go away. Meanwhile, Justin Trudeau's approval rating, according to a poll by the Angus Reid Institute, is at its, is at its highest level since 2017. Um, I suppose that's not unusual in a time of crisis when a political leader is is briefing the country every day on what's going on. Uh, do you think it is sustainable? No, I think this is a product of the of the um, of the crisis. I wouldn't read too much into any polls right now. I mean, people want to rally around; they want to feel that there's somebody in charge. Trudeau pretty much has the the field to himself right now, which I think that they were quite keen to 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 maintain. I mean, I think a lot of this debate about whether Parliament should be sitting was uh, from the Liberals' side was self interest. Why would they possibly want the, the opposition to start getting face time when he's getting all the face time right now, and he's giving out 
hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, the, the, the nine billion for for students yesterday was uh, it takes the the total number of direct spending from the federal government to 145 billion dollars. You know, when everybody's getting something, they're generally pretty well disposed to the person who's giving them it. So I, I don't think that uh, this is a, a, a long-lasting trend. I mean, after the, the crisis has passed and, and we're then into a different phase when, when it's not about uh, firefighting, it's about planning how the economy comes out, you know, that is going to be the real test of, of leadership. And I think it, uh, that uh, let's talk about the numbers six months from now, maybe a year from now. Yeah. Finally, on a different topic, John, uh, there are lots of questions being asked about uh, what the RCMP uh, did and didn't do during uh, the shooting rampage of a man in Nova Scotia uh, on the weekend. Uh, what, what do you think about the scrutiny over whether an alert was sent out and what the, the, the decisions were that the RCMP made during that time? Well, it's easy to be uh, sort of armchair quarterback and, and to second guess what was happening at a time of complete fog, I guess. I mean, there was a, a fog of war. But as the when the chief, uh, the police chief yesterday in Nova Scotia was explaining the timeline, uh, you know, I kind of cringed a little bit as he was saying, well, you know, at 10.26 p.m. on the Saturday night, we knew there was a homicide. They set up two different perimeters. It turns out that the, the gunman was within neither of them. They were all presumably discovering incidents all through the night. By 8 o'clock in the morning, they'd, they'd figured out that the guy was uh, dressed as a, as a policeman, driving a cop car. And by 10.15 in the morning, they were approached by the emergency uh, service in Nova Scotia that deals with alerts, asking them should they put out an alert. And then it was, it, they were thinking about doing this, but by 11.26, when the gunman was, was found and shot, they were still thinking about it. Um, you know, why the, the emergency management system had to contact the police and not the other way around, why, having done so, it still took another hour and 15 minutes before they, before they got around to doing, uh, issuing one. You know, I think that questions inevitably are going to be asked not least by the families of people who lost loved ones, because some of those lives could have been saved, it seems to me, if there was an alert issued the previous night or even first thing in the morning. You know, the the lady who uh, who went to work thinking it was all over would probably still be alive if she'd had she'd received uh, uh, an alert on her phone. A lot of people are not on Twitter. Now, the, the police chief was making the case that that he'd reached out, or his department had reached out on Twitter from the first homicide, but a lot of people didn't read that, obviously. All right, John, great to have your comments on all these topics today. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. We'll be making a formal request to bring in those extra reinforcements. This includes resources from Public Health Agency of Canada and Canadian Forces personnel. We will begin by directing that the additional personnel be deployed to five priority homes in the province. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, Matt Gurney argues the coronavirus crisis shows exactly why we need to bulk up our military. Gurney writes, Sending an extra thousand troops to Quebec and hundreds to Ontario won't break the back of the Canadian Armed Forces, 
but the military was stretched even before the pandemic hit, and while some of those tasks can be postponed or scaled back, some can't. There are still going to be wildfires out west. We still have allies abroad that we've pledged to support. When the pandemic is finally behind us and we have a chance to take stock of all the ways we should have been better prepared, military preparedness should be near the top of the list. At Policy Options, Catherine May considers how the coronavirus could reshape the federal public service. May writes, The COVID-19 pandemic has handed the public service a grand-scale opportunity to experiment with new ways of operating, including rethinking the need for massive office buildings and embracing digital government more fully. What public servants learn in the next few months by working remotely and in crisis could jolt the bureaucracy into a reordering of practices and culture that reformers haven't been able to do in 25 years. At globalnews.ca, Charles Adler argues the playing field isn't level when it comes to sacrifice. Adler writes, Many are able to do their jobs from home. Their sacrifice is the loss of the liberty to do all those other things that sweeten life. But the current situation is more difficult for those who cannot work from home and cannot stay on the payrolls of employers. I'm thinking of those who have been laid off and whose employers have made no commitment to bring them back. The slogan, we're all in this together, may be true. But it would be untrue to say that we are all making equal sacrifices. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. Almost every provincial premier is now talking about a plan for reopening the economy and loosening the lockdowns and physical distancing measures. But as CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, not every province is in the same situation. And that may pose a particular challenge for the federal government. Mark, we'll get to know more details of the Saskatchewan plan when Premier Mo and his officials hold a press conference later this morning. But he's announced a five-step plan, which he says will be gradual and cautious. Now, Saskatchewan is arguably one of the best provinces to experiment with this opening up because it is the province with the lowest rate of infection and among the fewest cases of deaths in the country, as well as one of the highest rates of testing all of which puts it in a good position to experiment with lessening the restrictions. Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister has also talked about revealing his province's plan next week, and every other Premier has echoed the same sentiments. But the big question is, what about the two provinces which make up for 85% of the country's cases of COVID-19, Quebec and Ontario? Both Premier Doug Ford and Premier Francois Legault have also said they'd like to announce a plan for moving ahead with opening up their provinces, but at the same time, the shocking death toll in their province's long-term care facilities has them both asking for emergency help from Ottawa, including intervention of the Canadian forces. Which brings us to another question, and that will be, we'll be paying close attention to the opening up process, because there will be issues when one province such as Manitoba moves ahead with its lessening of restrictions, and when the neighbouring province such as Ontario is not in the same position. And there's every possibility that the opening up process will bring about flare-ups and second waves of infection. And that's where Ottawa comes in, because we will have to insist on a minimum level of testing or contact tracing, or else we could be in a very dangerous situation. A lot of people are watching countries like Japan and Singapore, which were seen as having clobbered the initial outbreak of COVID-19, but are now both facing second waves of infection, which are far far more serious and deadly than their first encounters with the virus. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will speak with the President of Turkey before chairing the Cabinet meeting, followed by his daily news conference on the coronavirus. And Conservative leader Andrew Scheer will hold a news conference to speak about the government's response to COVID-19. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, April 23rd. 
Tune in to CPAC and CPAC.ca throughout the day for continuing coverage of the coronavirus crisis. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.